from the Brooklyn Paper Building in beautiful downtown Brooklyn. It's America's downtown. It's the only Bro- downtown. It's the only downtown that matters anymore. Seriously. It's Brooklyn Paper Radio. I'm your host, Vince DiMaselli. Joining me, of course, my co-host, Tony Rotuno. Right, Tony? Yes, sir. You here? Glad and, to be here. And Johnny's here. Again. How are you doing? Johnny's, Johnny's back. Managed to make it. Well, we did it. Got an uh, exciting show today. We got uh, Paul Steely White is here of Transportation Alternatives. Round of applause. He's got, yeah, is he here? Can you do that? Yep. See that? He's just like, he's right on it, Johnny. He's Johnny on the spot. He's, he's here when you need him. Yeah, right, uh, right there. Rounds of applause. The only way to answer, it's five, four, three. And then he makes the thumb. And then maybe in 10 more seconds the show yeah. starts. Can we back up a second? Was yeah. that real applause? That was real applause. Was oh, real yeah. applause. You want you another need one? Your headphones. You got to hear, hear the applause. Oh yeah, that's right. Told, there it is. Yeah, that sounds just like the last community board meeting I attended. Really? What happened? <laughs> yeah. Everyone got up and just Everyone cheered. Everyone was pro bike lane, pro safety. Nothing about preserving their parking spaces. I find wow. that hard to believe. I find that extremely hard to believe. That's a joke. I, I, yeah. It was yeah. right. Yeah. You weren't. You weren't. You were being facetious. That, 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 that would warrant more than a round of applause. I think. All right. Well, Paul Steely White is from Transportation Alternatives and. I just want to jump right into this. Everybody in Brooklyn knows last week we had a horrific car accident. Crash. Uh, crash. Car crash. Sorry, we call yeah, them crashes. Car crash. Connotes prevention better than the word accident. And I will be interrupted by Paul Steely right re- repeatedly. I'm an, ad- I'm an advocate. I'll <laughs> do that from time to time. <laughs> we call him the anti-car person, Paul Steely White. Um, there, was a, there was a car crash last week. I stand corrected. Uh, in which uh, two small children were killed. And this was in Park Slope on uh, 9th Street and 5th, 5th Avenue. 5 yeah. and 9. 5 and 9. 5 and 9. And uh, a lot's been going on since then. Uh, we've covered it a lot in the paper, right, Tom? We've covered it a lot in the paper. Continuing into this week, um, one sort of piece of bright news from the crash was that one of the mothers who was hit, who was pregnant, um, her her unborn baby will live, according to the family, which was sort of the only you know, happy news to come out of, of the of the collision, you know, mm-hmm. seven days afterward. Yeah. And she was the actress? She was. She's a, a Tony Award winning actress. Um, His name's Tony. My name is Tony. So. I did not bestow the award, however. But yeah, she's, she's well known on Broadway and off-Broadway uh, and won her Tony in 2015. And a Brooklynite. And she is a Brooklynite, yes. Obviously. Okay. Yes. Well, Not born in Brooklyn, but she lives in Brooklyn now. Well, that's like so a, she's a Brooklynite. That's like me almost. Yeah. And Not a and Brooklynite. Me. It's like me. So and yet, Well, you live in Brooklyn. I live it. Well, I wasn't it's born more like here, but I live here me. now. It's more like you than me. What so, if you live in Queens? Last night. Don't know what that is. There was a big uh, gathering, a vigil, if you will. What do you want to call it? A protest? It uh, wasn't an accident. It was more of a march and a demand. I mean, we, we saw an uprising last night where parents, families, kids, over a 1,000 came out to demand action from Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo. We know how to prevent these crashes, these tragedies. Let's make sure that our elected officials lead and get mm-hmm. it done. So how did this, how did this come about? How did this come about? Um, who who put it together? Was it you guys? Was it uh, and and how many and where did it happen? It was really a number of organizations coming together to make it happen in a very short period of time. You know, United Federation of Teachers, um, all the local schools. You know, but if I have to name one organization that really made it happen, it would be Families for Safe Streets. This is a group of New Yorkers who have lost loved ones mm-hmm. in crashes, just like we saw, and they have chosen to devote much of their lives to preventing that from happening to anyone else. Very similar to Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but mm-hmm. what they're doing is really focused on street design uh, because now we know what kind of street designs better insulate people from reckless drivers. And also on enforcement and making sure that there are real consequences for motorists who endanger the lives of others. And they've made a lot of progress. We lowered the speed limit in New York City a few years ago to 25 miles per hour thanks mm-hmm. to their right. work. We have schools... Now, uh, some schools have speed enforcement cameras that are reducing speeds by 63% around the tiny number of schools that have them. So they've done a lot to bring this issue to the fore. Mm-hmm. So last night, you said how many people showed up about? We counted over 1,000. The New York Post said 
less than that, but there were a lot of kids. And so if you just scan the crowd, you see a bunch of adults, it's easy to miss the little ones who were there and they were ultimately leading, leading the march. And many of them spoke, uh, well, all of them spoke very powerfully, but they were all talking about the loss of their friends, you know, kids mm -hmm. that they played with. And they recounted the details of these crashes because 40 children have been killed in such a way in the last four years. We're, on average, wow. we're losing like 10 kids a year. And I think a lot of people think that this is happening because of bad parenting or kids are darting into the street, you know, jaywalking yeah. or doing other things they shouldn't. But really, if you look at the actual crash reports from the NYPD and you look at what happened, most of these cases are because of bad street design or reckless driving. The kids weren't doing anything wrong. And I would also submit to you, in a dense city like New York, if a kid is stepping out into traffic or riding their bicycle in a way they shouldn't, that shouldn't be a death sentence, right? We should be able to design our streets in a forgiving way, and we know how to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, we've done it on Queens Boulevard. The former Boulevard of Death hasn't seen a fatality in three years. What were the types of changes that they made on Queens Boulevard to make it safer? Narrowing car lanes. Most car lanes on our big streets in New York City are built to highway standards. They're overly wide. And when a motorist sees a big, wide lane, what do they do? They hit the gas. Mm -hmm. uh, most of our streets don't have protected space for walking and bicycling. So that means pedestrian refuge islands protected by bollards and other barriers, protected bike lanes, tighter intersection design so people aren't taking fast, wide turns. Instead, they're taking more intentional, slow, acute turns. There's a whole basket of measures that actually have been proven to work, but we still only have them on a fraction of our streets. And so really we're pressing the mayor to invest more in Vision Zero. Don't let these street safety improvements get caught in years of community board process. You know, the analogy I use, if it's appropriate, is, mm -hmm. is cholera. Okay. <laughs> cholera. Can we go back a couple centuries? So cholera used to be this thing that people got, you know, you live in a city, Cholera happens. Hundreds of people are going to die from cholera. It was because of the plumbing, or well, the lack thereof. Before that was found out, they thought it was because you were dirty or sinful or Irish. You know, and there was oh. there wasn't any, or heaven forbid, all three. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, the father of modern day epidemiology, Dr. John Snow, and the story of the Broad Street Pump in London, he figured out what was actually causing cholera, and it was about mixing sewage with drinking water and. So it really birthed the whole safety engineering, you know, public works that saves lives. And so that spurred a very massive and quick investment in new sewage and water infrastructure that made cholera a thing of the past. Now, we have a very similar moment now with traffic deaths, where we now know that it's really street design primarily that is encouraging reckless driving, failing to protect our most vulnerable road users, pedestrians and cyclists. Mm -hmm. most notably. And through design, we can actually change this. And so what we're doing, working more with public health professionals. Last night, we had a uh, head nurse from Mount Sinai Trauma Unit. She mm. sees these terrible tragedies every single day. And the evidence that good street design can work to prevent this is so strong now, it's not really up for debate anymore. We just knew, we know how to design safe streets, just like we know how to design safe water and sewage systems. It's mm -hmm. just time for the mayor to do it. So... Uh, Paul, last Thursday, you know, three days after the crash occurred, uh, the uh, Department of Transportation's commissioner, you know, promised that the city will speedily release, you know, what she claimed was a plan to redesign 9th Street to make it safer. One of the things she mentioned initially were was installing protected bike lanes, but the rest of the, the so-called plan was was sort of up in the air at the time. Did, did more details on that come out last night, or was that, you know, were if they didn't, what what would you be pushing for as far as some of those changes, you know, those like drilling down and the, sure, what sure. Be done? Well, I know you're going to have Council Member Brad Lander on the show here shortly, and he's really um, at the table in terms of what is going to get done on Ninth Street. But you know what we'd like to see, in addition to protected bike lanes, are intersection improvements that really make those crosswalks more visible. That bump out the corners you've mm -hmm. probably seen this it's, it's 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 a design where they call those bump outs right thank you yes exactly bump outs and what those do is they they recognize that when people are queuing for that walk signal people do tend to bunch at the corner sometimes people will spill over over the curb and when you reclaim that space for pedestrians you're really making them more visible to motorists 
so that before a motorist turns, oh, they see that there's somebody there. I mean, right, most motorists aren't out for blood, right? They're not trying to kill people intentionally. And so really it's about making pedestrians more prominent in the street design and sending a strong message better than any advertising could ever do via street design. You're sending a message to the, the motorist saying, like, people belong here. People are the rulers of this street. And as a motorist, you are a guest. And that's very different from a very sort of suburban or rural driving mindset where you have the wide open road and you as the motorist are really the only thing that matters. Um, and so we're trying to make this distinction between sensitive design for urban areas like New York City because we are the most pedestrian rich city in America. But why are the streets designed the way they were designed? Like, was was there was this like thought out or we're going to make it more car friendly like all these years? Can I use your word accident? It was really a historical accident. You know, it was it was a time when the motor car was coming into the city and everyone was sold on this idea that it was the future. And, you know, books have been written about this. And this is what Jane Jacobs fought against, really, the, the, the automobile taking over the city. Streets that were once more like living rooms, um, the domain of pedestrians, you know, mostly being turned into fast thoroughfares for cars. And everyone thought that was progress at the time. And so the traffic engineering uh, discipline really took over. And these guys were you know, trained traffic engineers who knew what was best. And they were going to design city streets in a very Robert Moses type fashion. Let's make way for the motor car. And you know, pedestrians are collateral damage. They actually use that word. Um, Wait, that, wait, that word was actually used? Absolutely. If people get killed, it's Pedestrian collab- <laughs> interference, collateral damage, let's try to minimize it where we can, but, you know, make way for progress. And this is all, you know, documented wow. in a book called Fighting Traffic by Peter Norton, who's a historian at the University of Virginia, but he chronicles in very excruciating detail, you know, how many lives were lost in the 20s and 30s when the car first did come to the city. Uh, in one year alone, there was like over a thousand kids were killed on the streets of New York City, and there were huge marches with mothers, and mothers had stars to denote how many kids they had lost. Um, in a, wow. you know, so there's a really rich history, and we essentially lost those battles. You know, the the people who were fighting on the side of preserving our streets as public space, preserving streetcars, really <laughs> lost to the what's called motordom, right? You know, the auto companies, the oil companies. Not to be conspiratorial about it, but <laughs> that's pretty much what happened. Um, and so, you know, ever since Jane Jacobs um, fought her big battles and really stopped Robert Moses from going further and building the, you know, the uh, the Lomax Expressway through Lower Manhattan and the Mid Mid Manhattan Expressway, which really would have turned Manhattan and large parts of uh, our city into Houston, essentially, right? Sure, and, yeah. and and so, my organization, Transportation Alternatives, was founded in 1973 by many contemporaries of Jane who said, you know what, we stopped Robert Moses, but we have to reclaim what we had lost. And so, our mission is to reclaim New York City from the automobile and promote biking, walking, and public transit as the best transportation alternatives. And your organization has been doing it since 1973. Yes. So, but it seems to me in the last 10 years, a lot has happened. I mean, up until that point, you know, I think it was still all car. But in the last 10 to 15 years, where we start seeing those bump outs, we start seeing, um, you know, uh, more bike lanes, lanes protected bike lanes. The the term traffic calming has become part of the vernacular. Yes, Yes, indeed. And that's, that's, that's very accurate. And, you know, some of that was due to our work. But really, the leadership of then Mayor Michael Bloomberg and Transportation Commissioner Jeanette Sadiq Khan pushing the envelope on these kinds of designs, you know, borrowing from many European cities. And, you know, I get knocked by real New Yorkers for invoking Copenhagen and Amsterdam and all of that. And perhaps, you know, I deserve that. But, you know, really, a lot of those European cities have so much more in common with New York than Houston or Los Angeles, right? Because we do have this dense urban form, right? Like Mm -hmm. a lot of people live in a very tight area. And so we really have to make the most of our streets and we have to make them safe, you know. And so, you know, what Jeanette and Mayor Bloomberg did was to really look at what street design uh, was all over the world and bring the best practices home right here to New York City and apply them. So our first protected bike lanes, our first pedestrian uh, friendly bump outs, changing signal timing, right? So that pedestrians get a head start to establish themselves in the crosswalk before cars are allowed to turn, right? That's another one of the simple safety features that are saving lives on streets like Queens Boulevard. So you know, all of this happened. But when Mayor Bloomberg was going away, you'll remember a gentleman by the name of Anthony Weiner, 
who was threatening to take all this stuff away, you know, that like that the war against the car is over if I'm elected mayor and we're going to rip out the bike lanes and, and all of that. And that was Anthony Weiner's thing, among others. And, <laughs> um, and 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 he and he lost. And, and, and I think, you know, the movement, if you will, of people who believe in this vision of a more you know pedestrian, humane city uh, managed to convince then candidate de Blasio that there was a lot more lives to be saved. Right. Mm-hmm. And so de Blasio took up Vision Zero as a campaign promise. And when he was elected, as he was being elected, we had a spate of child fatalities, um, you know, as tragic as the one we saw last week in Park Slope. Um, you know, Sammy Cohen-Eckstein on, on Prospect Park West, yep. Allison Liao, a three-year-old, walking hand-in-hand with her grandmother with the light in the crosswalk in, in Flushing, you know, struck by a turning motorist. And, you know, there were two or three other harrowing deaths that we saw, Cooper Stock on the Upper West Side. And this galvanized the mayor, I think, to really come out of the gate strong on Vision Zero. And so, you know, he has mostly been doing a really good job on Vision Zero. You know, we knock the mayor to do more, and we will continue to do so because there's so many more lives that we can save. But he gets a lot of credit for taking Vision Zero as far as he has. There are actually 100 New Yorkers alive today that wouldn't be alive otherwise had he not taken Vision Zero up. Because if you look at the, the in 2013, before he came into office, what the traffic fatalities were annually, mm-hmm. if we had just continued to, to stay at that number, mm-hmm. we would have had about 100 more people um, lost in the last four years. But instead, he that number has continued to decline thanks to his leadership. Now, do you think that has something to do with the, the, the drop in the speed limit? Absolutely. Was there... Speed you know, cameras, you know, dropping the speed limit redesigning streets like Queens Boulevard, sending a clear message to motorists that there will be some consequences if you actually kill someone right. as you're committing. And we had a big fight with the bus drivers union a couple of years ago because finally there were real consequences if drivers were killing people in the crosswalk who were walking with the walk signal. Mm-hmm. And now we haven't seen a single fatality in a long time from buses making turns and killing. In one year we had eight pedestrians losing their lives from um city bus drivers. And that's not to knock the, the bus drivers. They have a very tough job. But they were told to be on time no matter what, right? Like, like be on schedule. Mm-hmm. You know, you know they didn't, At all know, costs. I, I don't know if they said collateral damage, but that was essentially the message. And so now there's a very different value system at work that we have to preserve human life over convenience or perceived convenience or expediency. And that's really at the heart of Vision Zero. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, you bring up the, the change in... Um, in sort of the protocol for bus drivers, because last week on the show, we, you know, we had two private carting drivers here, you know, and, and some of the stories we've been following recently, you know, in, in our coverage of where sort of vision, what vision zero may overlook are, are the deaths of, of cyclists or other pedestrians, you know, when these private garbage truck drivers hit and kill them. Um, some of, some of which are employed by action carting, which, you know, the city pays tens of millions of dollars a year to to um, pick up its its trash from private organizations and agencies. And those drivers were saying that they're really in a bad place because their bosses are working them to death, and the city, you know, needs to pass this sort of zone uh, garbage pickup proposal that the mayor is behind. Where are you guys on that? You know, where are you guys in sort of in sort of combating you know that source of of vision zero? Well, well as you know, private waste haulers have the worst record on our streets per mile driven. They are absolutely the worst. So, like you know, if you look at fatalities per million mile, miles driven, it's the private garbage haulers in New York City that are at the bottom, and that has to change. And that accountability has to start somewhere, right? It, it starts um, often with drivers who are driving with suspended licenses or, or, or breaking the law. Um, but ultimately, I think that account- accountability has to rest with action carding, right, with the companies who are putting pressure on those drivers. And so there's a liability at work there that needs to be followed through on. And that liability also extends to the city of New York um, with street design. There was a big court case, the state appellate court uh, in 2016, uh, Totoro versus the city of New York. Uh, I won't go into the details, but basically they found the city liable for bad street design, even though there was a reckless driver killing a kid in Gravesend, in Gravesend and that's where that happened. Um, the city found was found liable because that street design was known to encourage speeding and known to encourage reckless driving. And so 
um, it's not just with individual drivers that we're starting to see more focus and more accountability. It's also with the city uh, and their responsibility to ensure safe street design. Sure. Yeah. I think we've been joined by um, uh, Councilman Brad Lander. Councilman, are you there? I am here. Good afternoon. All right. You're on the Brooklyn Paper Radio here with uh, Paul Steely-White of Transportation Alternatives and Anthony Rotuno, uh, Deputy Editor here at the Brooklyn Paper, and myself, Vince Dimaselli. We're talking about safe streets. We're talking about the uh, march last night in Park Slope. I believe you were there. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. And I want to just give a big credit to Paul and Transportation Alternatives and uh, Families for Safe Streets, the organization of family members who have lost a loved one to traffic violence. It was, uh, you know, heartbreaking and moving and powerful gathering. You know, a thousand people at least were out there together, um, partly grieving. You know, we stopped and did a moment of silence at the site of Fifth Avenue and Ninth Street where Abigail Blumenstein um, and Joshua were, were killed a week ago. But it was more than that, just trying to make it an even louder wake-up call that for the good steps that we've taken in recent years, thanks to the advocacy, we still just have all these, in this case kids, but all these people being killed and seriously injured on the streets of our city because we don't take this seriously enough. You know, we just still have the attitude of, um, you know, there are going to be accidents. People don't mean to hit other people and kill them. And so what can you do? Um, and the answer, as we've seen more and more and more clearly, is that there are very real things we can and must do on street design, on reckless driver accountability and behavior change and enforcement and getting the most reckless drivers, like the one that killed Abigail and Joshua, off the road before they can kill our kids. So it was a, uh, it's you know, it's heartbreaking and and to you know to to do them unfortunately over and over again is wrenching. But it was it was a it was big and powerful and moving out there last night. So Paul and his team really deserve a lot of credit. So there you go. Well, um, you, you brought up a lot of stuff there, and I, I just want to I want to let me dial it back just a little bit. You talked about changing the streets, and we've talked about it too. In in you know in ways to ensure that cars slow down. We've talked about making sure that drivers with with uh, with with points on their license, you know, don't don't get to drive around anymore. We know in this particular case, the woman that was driving, at least her car, had had a number of. Uh, Speeding tickets in in school zones where they where, she, where the person driving was caught on camera uh, speeding. The person driving went through traffic lights. We're not sure that it's her. But how can the city and I guess more importantly the state, you know, change the laws to make sure what what needs to happen to make sure these people don't you know or people with uh, bad driving records aren't driving. So you're right that that last thing, I mean, to me, we got to, I think we have at least on street design, really, um, we know what to do. Uh, and, and TA and others have put this out there. But on this idea of changing, of ending reckless driving um, and changing behavior and getting real enforcement, we're still just at the very beginning. So, you know, the it does take state law. The state DMV is a state agency. So if you're going to take somebody's license or suspend somebody's license, that's going to take a change in state law. And right now, you know, you could keep racking up. You could have 100 red light run camera runs and 100 school speed zone violations, and nothing would happen to you if you paid your tickets. So connecting the dots between increasing camera enforcement and getting points on the license is something that has to get done. Now, that may mean taking the car rather than suspending the license, right? But what we can say, and there's some legislation now being introduced into Albany, saying at some point, if you have reckless driving tickets against the car, then the car will get impounded. Um, and obviously, if you've got a set of factors, we've got to look again at uh, exactly what they are, that you get your driver's license suspended. Um, but there's a lot of other steps as well. It remains true that state law is so weak around basic accountability when you do hit and kill or seriously injure someone that it's rare that police will move forward with the investigation, that prosecutors will prosecute, and that someone will be found guilty and held accountable for reckless driving that kills someone 
if it's not a hit and run. If it's a hit and run, then there is some, you know, then there is a charge. But in a lot of cases, that attitude I mentioned of, oh, it was an accident, even if it was reckless driving, you sped or you failed to yield or you ran a light, and even if you didn't mean to, your reckless driving killed that person. There's got to be more accountability. So there's state law change required there. And then the last thing I want to say, and here's where I think the city can actually do more, because this doesn't necessarily take a change in state law, we could do a lot more so that for lower-level offenses, we get people into places that have a chance to change their behavior so that if you do get, uh, you know, one school speed zone ticket or, you know, two, something at the low level where we know a lot of people do those things and don't take them that seriously – Um, We've got a new program. We started together with Transportation Alternatives and the Brooklyn DA about two years ago down at the Reddit Community Justice Center called the Driver Accountability Program, where people with a reckless driving ticket get, um, rather than, you know, pay it or do community service, they go to a class that's been set up. They see some videos that have been developed by Safe Streets Advocates that feature family members who lost loved ones. They go through a structured exercise that help them focus on their own driving behaviors. And, we, and we've actually started to get some data back that suggests that there's about a 40% reduction in recidivism for people who go through this program. Um, you know, I think the analogy that I've heard Paul and, and others give is to drunk driving. There was a time in the society when drunk driving was just viewed as normal, acceptable, something that happened, and a concerted... It was, it was a reason for the accident. <laughs> well, he was drunk! What yeah. do you expect? So, um, exactly. And, you know, so that got changed by a big movement over time that involved enforcement, that involved education, and that was thoughtful about trying to go about changing people's behavior. Um, and there's a lot more the city can do there. The You know, the videos that are in the taxi cabs are good, and the billboards are good but getting a lot more serious about how the NYPD enforce, what happens with that enforcement. So if you are a low-level reckless driver, you get a chance to change your behavior. And if you're a high-level reckless driver, you get off the streets. But what would it take to get someone, I mean, in your opinion, how many how many uh, times do you have to be caught driving recklessly before you lose your license? Is it three strikes and you're out? What, what, what's your take on that? Well, I'd like to see, it turns out that there has been very little data analysis before this week. And this week on Twitter and Facebook, citizen data analysts, some of whom were out in the streets with us last night, um, started downloading the data and running regression analyses and looking at how many people, mm-hmm. yep. you know, and like with everything, it's a pretty small percentage of people that are the really bad apples. Mm. That work is just at its beginning, and, and that's a shame. I think this is work that already should have been done. So I'm not ready to say this week, you know, X speed light, you know, X running of red lights plus Y running of school speed zones plus Z failure to yield equal license suspension. But this is why good data analysts, you know, we also have a lot of information on crashes. And, and I think it is worth, you know, taking a real look at that. What are the most predictive things that we know, um, you know, drivers with these kinds of records are the most likely to wind up um, in crashes that injure and kill people? And I think this is an area where we could be driven by data that we're just now starting to look at. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was in uh, school and I took driver's ed, I don't remember them ever really talking about aggressive driving or road rage or anything like that. And I, I mean, this is back in the 80s. They probably showed me a video from like the 1960s on how to drive a car. You know, driver's ed in New York State is a joke. You know, I, I only got my license a few years ago just down the street from here. Why? At, at one of these private... I never had a license, you know. No, and, why'd you get it? <laughs> good question. Um, well, it's because every time my wife and I went on vacation and rented a car, she had to do all the driving and she was kind of sick of that. And exactly. I, and she was right. You should have kept it yeah. as it was. You were... Uh, that's a gold. So, so I had to go to the driving course and it was a, a private company doing this, you know, state-mandated five-hour driving course. The five-hour driving course was about an hour and 15 minutes, and it was shoddier than I could have ever imagined. And it, there was no focus on the particulars of urban driving, right? That, that, like, when you drive in a city like New York, it's very different from, you know, driving in a rural area or 
a suburb even. And so we need to change driver education just as we need to change accountability so that there is this special focus on taking special care when you are around millions of pedestrians. So what's the chances of the state doing something like that, uh, Councilman? Do you see them actually looking into the way we train our drivers? Uh, I mean, look, what I, 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 the, it seems like a reasonable, it seems like a reasonable way to go at it. Start at the beginning. Well, I mean, I Hmm. do think you need top to bottom because I I mean, the fact that there's not accountability when people kill people through reckless driving. I mean, I guess that's the end, but to me it's unacceptable. So from beginning to end from, uh, but I agree with you, you know, you think about something like failure to yield, uh, you know, when you turn right or left, you are expected to yield to the pedestrian. Like, that's a very frequent cause of accidents. Mm-hmm. And if you just watch drivers, the rule is that you yield to pedestrians. The practice, the majority of times, is that drivers blow through and expect the pedestrians to yield. That is to say, the law-breaking, in my kind of observation, is more than half the time on a thing that is responsible for, um, I'm not looking at the numbers, but I think it's about 30%. Of, of pedestrians that get that get hit in the city, mm-hmm. um, you know. So yes, like that's a thing that will take real education and enforcement to send the word that that's a serious rule, and we all take it seriously, and, and that's what we expect. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences for it. Um, I guess here's what I would say in terms of I, I'm I wish well, it's hard to be optimistic about Albany making change on things. That's just the reality. But I will say this. You know, I entered the council now eight years ago, and when I got there, there was not a vision zero culture, a culture of thinking about street safety. I, you know, it was something that I cared about um, coming from this neighborhood and, you know, having some folks who have helped educate me on it. That was the very much the minority position in the city council. And over the last eight years, that has been dramatically transformed. We have not done enough. But there is overwhelming support. Instead of people saying, thinking first about, oh, my God, you're trying to, this is a war on cars, you're, you know, the, the, there's not none of that, but the majority position and, and is Brad, we that can is save lives. And much, that happened much. because of the campaign that the TA and Families for Safe Streets led. And so I believe that that same level of advocacy and persuasion and passion might take a little longer in Albany where it's harder to make change. Is it going to happen right now? I hope so. This crash should cause it, but I know that change is coming. And Brad, you have made so much of that possible through your own leadership. And there may be a reason for us to be more hopeful this session in Albany. I know that the assembly draft budget just released includes an expansion of the schools-based speed safety camera program um, right. along the lines of what we've been asking for. And it's just a shame that it takes these tragedies to spur them to action. But as you pointed out, Brad, the courageousness of Families for Safe Streets is really pushing this forward. And so I think we can even win more from our state lawmakers. All right. Well, Paul Steely White has to check out, so I wanted to I wanted to say goodbye to him. I'm gonna go pick up my daughter and take her to Taekwondo class. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll have a few yes. more we have a few more minutes with Councilman Lander. We'll get into that. But Paul, I want to thank you for coming Thanks on. So thank much, you. Paul. Thank and you. It's, it's always a pleasure to have you on. More, more community board applause. Yeah. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> and I wanna remind We're everyone I wanna remind everyone that the Dimaselli wave should be should be enforced. DMSLA wave where you wave the pedestrian. Yes. As I'm waving Paul Steely White <laughs> out of the That should be the, incorporated into driver's ed. It should be. Into the new driver's ed curriculum. Without 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 question. Now, this week, uh councilman, there was a lot written obviously about this event. Uh, uh, our own uh, Gersh Kuntzman wrote a column basically talking about, you know, um car car nuts like you would talk about Gun nuts, you know, and and it, it's it you know with all that's going on in in uh, the United States today, uh, with 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 gun control and stuff like that. I mean, they started talking about car control. Uh, it was also mentioned, you know, in the New York Times in a column in the New York Times this weekend, uh, in the in the Sunday in the Sunday City section on the front page where this whole this was brought up again. Why aren't cars? Why aren't cars treated? 
differently. Is there big auto out there protecting cars? You know, cars. Uh, is it? Is it? Is, is there? Is there? Are there yeah, people out there? A, yeah, a lot. A lobby. Yeah, a lobby well, trying to make sure that that none of this stuff changes. Yeah, I would say two different things are true. There is big auto. I mean, it's the the AAA, the American Automobile Association, mm-hmm. uh, lobbies on behalf of drivers. Um, and, you know, so they're, they have a lobby, and in some cases they have resisted change. I guess I yeah, will say that, I, guess, what is, I think wh- this is one where the blame is less on, like, you know, big corporate money. The AAA is not the NRA. They're not spending <laughs> lots of money on electing politicians to continue to enforce policies that don't hold drivers accountable and, and don't address uh, traffic crash violence. I think, unfortunately, the blame here lies in all of us. Um, it is a, it's more cultural, I think, than it is lobbying. We, you know, the, the, though we're not in the 1950s anymore, people have a, a strong identity attached to their cars. Um, they think drivers, in particular, like think with their cars. And as we have tried to make the kinds of changes that we're talking about, People feel like there's a kind of right to to being a driver and resist change in ways. And look, sometimes in New York City, that's a lot around parking. One of the biggest challenges with the street redesigns that uh, we're often pushing for is that if you're going to, um, you know, make a turn more visible or add a bulb out or add a protected bike lane or add a center median, you often wind up having to lose some parking spaces. Right. And it is a headache to park in New York City. Everybody knows it's a headache. But as long as it's like that's where the right is, I have a right to a parking spot as opposed to we want to make sure our children are protected. Um, so, I, I, you know, and there's, there still remains a lot of that, that. There are some neighborhoods that, and especially this is true at the community board level, where even, you know, the majority of New Yorkers don't own cars. The majority of New York households do not own a car. And yet... If you go to community boards where traffic safety projects are discussed, you can tell that the majority of people engaging in that debate not only are car owners but think of themselves. And I guess maybe I'll just end here. Unfortunately, we're in these sort of tribal times where people jump to an identity, and there definitely is this sense that, you know, cyclists are, um, you know, young hipsters who are taking over our neighborhoods. And... Drivers are the old timers who are under threat, and we got to hold on to uh, our parking spaces and our cars. Um, fortunately, at least in the debate, you could try to get people to think about being pedestrians. Everybody in New York City is a pedestrian a lot of the time, and all our kids are, and, and that's why Families for Safe Streets, I feel like, is able to be so effective. Um, but I, I guess I think it's, you know, I wish the answer were some big corporate enemy, but I fear that the answer <laughs> is us. <laughs> well, I am a driver. I'm a pedestrian, and I am staunchly in the middle. You know, I you know I try to I try to understand, or I do understand when I'm driving a car that that is in fact a privilege, and that when you're trying to get from one place to the other, if there's if there's traffic, you got to deal with it. You can't just get angry. You can't slam on the horn. You can't try to creep through an intersection. You just have to you just have to be able to deal with Let it. Let it and, go. Yeah. And I just think a lot of people, for whatever reason, the second they get into a car. It's almost like if someone is uh, driving too close to you, it's like they're, it's like they've invaded your house, they've invaded your space. And yep. I, I honestly feel that they've never studied this, but I think when you're in a car, you get into this kind of mode where you're trying to protect yourself. Yep. And I think people drive that way because that's how we're programmed, you know. Definitely. And it's. Well, I think two things are true. One, exactly what you're saying: the road rage is a real thing. Behind the isolated wheel of your car, it is very easy to get in a kind of righteous, you know, my way or the highway. They don't call it that for nothing, uh, frame of mind. The other thing that's true is, look, you know, drivers can, can be jerks and drive like jerks. Cyclists can be jerks and cycle like jerks. And pedestrians can be jerks or just um, distracted, foolish walkers. Like, all those things are true. So, but... Only one of those things is has a you know a meaningful chance of killing the others. 
Uh, and so you do have an obligation. It's not just a level playing field where like everybody can sometimes be a jerk. If you're behind the wheel of a two-ton vehicle that, if operated recklessly, can kill, then you've got a heightened obligation, and and we just still don't we don't think of it that way. What what one of the things, uh, Councilman, with regard to this whole cultural shift from like a car-first culture, you know that you know, as we've all lamented. Yeah. It, Albany moves slow and changing laws, but you know, with regard to to the local police force and the way that they, you know, respond to a lot of these fatalities, you know, that oftentimes they'll communicate details of a collision. You know, a driver crossed or a pedestrian crossed mid block and was struck. You know, only yep. to fi- later find out that 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 that's just where the body was found. That's not where police. That's not where the car hit the victim. You know, police don't necessarily know where the car hit the victim, but they release these reports that sort of maybe uh, preliminarily blame the victim. And so then in retelling the, the, the incident, you know, the story becomes, the narrative becomes that there was some fault of the victims in that. So how can, you know, the local government, the city government, work with the local police department to sort of shift its culture in investigating these incidents and maybe not from the get-go creating this notion of doubt in, you know, the pedestrian may have caused something to happen to him or herself, you know, but that it could very well be a reckless driver who should be, you know, uh, caught in charge or, or what have you. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, you know, and look, most uh, police officers, they don't, they don't, you know, few people go to the police academy thinking about traffic safety. That's just not, you know, what draws people. People want to, you know, fight bad guys. And so it is not seen in many cases within the department as, you know, equally valued, highly valued work, despite the fact that we, you know, we lose about as many people, about as many people are injured and killed uh, through traffic violence as through gun violence. So elevating this issue as one that just matters and is serious that um, shift the cult, shifts the culture from kind of cars first to um, shared streets or complete streets, um, and then thinks about enforcement as a tool for behavior change away from reckless driving, and holds people accountable even if you know they didn't mean it, even if there wasn't. Um, there's a lot of work to do there. I will say the best I've ever seen it done was that in the 78th precinct we had a commanding officer named Mike Amari. Um, mm-hmm. who uh, then went on to be the head of NYPD Highway before he, he, he died tragically. But um, he, um, he led a, a change at the 78th Precinct that really made a difference. And, you know, he did it, you know, it's just leadership. He listened to the community. He understood that this was a community. This was in the, basically, um, he was relatively early in his command when Sammy Cohen Eckstein was killed at Prospect Park West and 3rd Street. Mm-hmm. He saw what it meant to the community, and he took leadership in training the officers, getting them to think about it seriously. He got a lot of officers out on bikes. He was himself out on a bike, you know, mm-hmm. and he put more officers out on foot. They wrote more failure-to-yield tickets. It, it kind of became a model. I think, unfortunately, that's gotten a little bit lost in Vision Zero, there is more enforcement by the NYPD, but it mostly means writing speeding tickets and writing failure to yield tickets, which are up from where they were before Vision Zero started. Um, you know, but that's not um, what we're talking about here. Right. The council added some money in terms of making sure we don't blame the victim and doing a real investigation that looks at where accountability should be. Um, the council added some money a couple of years ago to the Collision Investigation Squad, which is supposed to investigate any time someone is, is killed or seriously injured in a crash. But I think we're still very far behind. Every, every crash where someone's killed gets an investigation, but not everyone where someone is uh, se- severely or critically injured. And we have not done a good job of training officers in the precincts who aren't in that collision investigation squad on what matters. And so they continue to do just what you said. So there is still real culture change work that needs to happen in the NYPD on this issue. On this issue. And, you know, like anything else, it just it takes leadership and diligence. Do you think there's uh, there are less police officers patrolling the streets now that there are more cameras out there taking pictures? I mean, I know driving around that 
spots where I would routinely see officers, you know, in cars uh, checking for people going through red lights. I, I don't see that anymore. I, I mean, I see more. I mean, obviously, the cam with the camera there. Why would the police officer be there? But that being said, if the police officer's there and someone does go through the light and the camera does take a picture of them, then we could identify who that person was. I mean, it's. I mean, is. Has that has that number? I mean, maybe you know. Has the number dropped off with the actual think, number of I tickets mean, being written? I know written? That, that the number of tickets written by officers for failure to yield and for speeding outside of school speed zones, um, those things have are up above where they were before Vision Zero. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think the number of officers. I think that the number of tickets written has gone up, and not that the number of officers writing them has has gone down. Um, but I guess I also think there isn't, again, this gets back to what we were saying before, unless that's part of an integrated strategy to change people's behavior. You know, if you just pay the ticket, um, and there's not any other consequence, the odds of it resulting, I mean, look, if you know there's a red light camera at a particular intersection, right. you're going to stop at that red light. And if you know there's a red light camera, look, part of the idea of getting speed cameras outside of every school is then people will know they better not speed in front of schools. Right, um, right. And at least they'll slow down there. Um, oh, it's certainly a deterrent, but, yeah. Yeah, so that's the look. We, and, you know, I think Albany's been, you know, some people have said, well, this is just a revenue enhancer. What we made clear in the council and asking for is we'll put up giant signs that say there's a speed <laughs> camera here. Don't get caught. Like, our goal is not to catch people speeding. Our right, goal it's not is a to gotcha get people moment. to slow down. Well, I definitely think. I would agree that it is a revenue enhancer. That revenue is part of the reason why they why they've done it. But that being said, it is a deterrent, and it will slow car it will slow cars down. You know, uh, I I would love to think that the reason behind all of this is to save lives. But I you know I'm a realist, and I think that you know the people behind some of this understand that well, you know this is a big way to make a lot of money for the city or for the you know uh, which again I have no problem with when it comes to the speeding timers by. Uh, by uh, by schools and stuff like that because again it slows people down. I know I know where speed cameras are and I know that sometimes you're coming off a highway and there's a school there. I know there's one out in Sheepshead Bay. You come off like it's I think it's Sheepshead Bay Road exit or one of those exits. There's the, you know the, the the high school is there. There's a junior high school there and as you're coming off and there's a speed camera and you know so now when people get off the highway they don't get off the highway at 50 miles an hour they get off the highway at 30 miles an hour they slow down before right. they before they get to the to the and you know what if you get a ticket when you when you hit that uh, uh, sorry uh, yeah <laughs> you know yep. you shouldn't yep. have been going that fast you know yep so so councilman um we talked a little bit about this with Paul but he said you might have a better idea of what may be in the works and what's to come and how quickly it'll come but um you know uh, with with uh, Commissioner Trottenberg's announcement that there will be fast um, a fast redesign prepared for Ninth Street. Um, you know, what what have you heard may be coming in terms of improvements? Um, we know maybe a protected bike lane, perhaps bump outs. You know, is and and from where to where? You know, is it is it just between Fourth Avenue and Fifth Avenue? Is it extending from you know no, I further think along? They're going to look from. Third, I'm not sure whether Third or Fourth Avenue, but either Third or Fourth Avenue, all the way up to Ninth Street. I mean, up to Ninth Street, up to Prospect Park West, up Ninth Street to Prospect Park West. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the thing when people say protected bike lanes is, I mean, of course that's you know good if you're a cyclist, but the the reason that those are valuable if you're a pedestrian is that it uh, it goes along essentially with. Um, um, you know, right now on Ninth Street, it's just a giant wide street. Right. And so you can fit, you know, essentially four cars abreast. So you get people who pass, even though, you know, kind of zoom into the middle to, to do so. Uh, you get people who whip, you know, U-turns, uh, double parking. It's really kind of a, a wild west. And if you you can either you don't have to have you maybe I don't know if people know Vanderbilt Avenue in Brooklyn yeah, there's not sure. a protected bike lane there but what they did was put a center median in um, expanded the parking lane a little so that they just defined for a lot of it there's just one driving lane each way then when there's two it's clear but it it reduces that whipping around and you can do the same thing with protected bike lanes so 
the goal is to get a treatment like that that just um, you know narrows the driving sort of lanes con- yeah, the uh, for the most of the stretch, lane. and then at the intersections, take a look at you know is it a center median or is it a bulb out that reduces the crossing distance in addition. So I think though those are the kinds of treatments they'll be looking at. Sometimes you can also look at lights as well. You know, there is at 9th Street and 6th Avenue, they did a couple of years ago, add um, uh, what they call a leading pedestrian interval or an LPI, where the walk sign goes before the green. So pedestrians have a chance. This goes to that failure to yield issue. If Mm -hmm. the walk sign and the green come together, then a turning car zips the turn before the drivers can even basically step off the sidewalk, mm-hmm. whereas if you give the pedestrians, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds of the walk sign first, you know, then they're out either all the way across or at least out in the middle of the intersection so that the driver will <laughs> will wait before making the turn. So, you know, that's a range of treatments. Um, and, yeah, she promised it in the coming weeks um, and right, said that month. they would implement it when the weather allows, so, which I, I take to mean... This, Today's this a beautiful spring. day. Yeah. Well, it, it's become a beautiful day. Yeah, that's true. So all of that stuff is being pushed by the the, uh, the Department of uh, Transportation. Am I like who who's responsible for making all these changes on on the streets, and who's yeah. actually who's actually driving that initiative? Is that something that the council talks about and says, "Hey, we need this"? Is it is it something that gets done on a on a where people are asking for it. Is there a master plan out there for, like, the entire city where uh, Department of Transportation is going to say, all right, well, this is what we're doing this year. This is what we're doing next year. Yeah, so it is the Department of Transportation. They do, you know, they have a budget that we're, you know, yes, the council pushes to make bigger Mm -hmm. um, for street redesigns. And, um, and, and, And Commissioner Trottenberg and her team you know, look to the data. There is a, you know, they keep maps of which intersections and which streets are the most dangerous, you know, like they did with Queens Boulevard. Queens Mm -hmm. Boulevard is obviously the best example. That Mm -hmm. was the Boulevard of Death, and the data showed it. And they brought a plan out that has had enormous safety benefits there. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, you know, now, of course, communities organize, elected officials ask, people demand and protest, and that can have an impact on on their plans. They're balancing between the data and, you know, and, and people organizing. So that's... So, they're, 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 you know, it's, it's not something that just happens willy-nilly. It's based on uh, something that's moving forward. And is there any way to, like, you know, if, if someone was interested to find out what was going to happen in their neighborhood... Whether it be uh, six months from now or five years from now, is there any way that uh, somebody could look look into that? Like, you know, is is there a plan out there that they could look at? I a PDF don't somewhere? Know that there is. I mean, you know, the, the I don't know that they have on the web kind of a like here's what you know. There's because it's five project. Well, I shouldn't say that. Yeah. There is there this Department of Transportation website um, includes a long list of the projects they have planned. I'm not sure whether there's a map that lets you see it or whether you kind of got to scroll through the screen. So I'll give an example. They're planning. They've been planning now for a little while. They did a first phase, and now we're doing a second phase, and there'll be a third phase of changes to 4th Avenue. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so that, you know, the last, you know, they've come to the community boards, and then they put the presentation up on the web. Um, I, it's a good question whether there's sort of a map of forthcoming street enhancements. Obviously, if people reach out to their city council member, or to their borough president, then we'll reach out to DOT. Maybe we'll already know and say, here's the plan. If not, we can reach out to DOT and say, is something in the works? You know, probably the number one thing people call my office for is, you know, we need a stoplight, we need a stop sign, we need a speed bump, you know, at this intersection or on this block. Um, You know, and DOT takes the requests and they do studies. Um, You know, it is unfortunately true. A lot of times they'll come back and say, you know, we don't have the, we don't, you know, we don't have the resources to get to this one yet, or, you know, we just don't see the level of traffic at this intersection that would merit a stoplight or a stop sign. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the resources thing, I have to pause on and and maybe take a, a lateral step, but but while we have you, you know, we recently reported on this ongoing issue with a brick sidewalk um, along Prospect Park West between Bartle. Rich, 
Bartle Pritchard Square and 18th Street. Um, that DOT, first of all, local seniors are complaining or local residents are complaining that seniors trip on it and they injure themselves. You know, the bricks are, are dislodged and, and because it's outside of private businesses and, and residences, you know, it's the homeowner's ob- obligation to maintain, but maintaining the brick is far more expensive than maintaining concrete, they claim. And so the city, you know, uh, Keith Bray here in Brooklyn in the Department of Transportation proposed, you know, installing bulb outs on that road as part of a measure to lay concrete instead of brick, but it came back at some $10 million astronomical price tag that the city said they couldn't afford. So, you know, how... With regard to make, you know, with regard to limited resources, you know, how 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 can they be? Some of these projects seem like they there's no reason they should cost ten million dollars, and yet these are the price price tags they're landing at. So, like, is that, you know, is there some inside process we don't know about that balloons the cost that high, or like, is that a reasonable a reasonable quote for fixing a street? Um, yeah, I mean, that would have to do a whole other uh, radio hour on the <laughs> challenge of kind of New York City capital projects management and why the projects take so long and cost so much and then still always come in over time and over budget, even on original, what seemed like ridiculous estimates. So then that's not just DOT, that's Park, no, and no. CDC, and, you know, Department of Senate, you know, DEP. So, um you know, there are we, we put in place a lot of rules. We want workers to get paid a living wage. We want workers to be safe. We want to make sure, you know, we're procuring in a way that is transparent and not corrupt. We want to, you know, there's uh, and over time a set of rules get written that make a process take very long, then reduce the number of contractors who will bid. Um, so so yes, that is a reasonable public sector construction as a result of those rules takes a long time and costs more than people would think is uh, is reasonable. Um, and you have challenges. Look, the reason there are bricks on that Prospect Park uh, West there is because years ago the you know the merchants of the of Windsor Terrace wanted something that brought character to their neighborhood sure, and sure. they got the city to pay the money to put the bricks in. So um, that's not an excuse and I think you're right that you know we need to go back and make it safer. But you know this is um, these are some of the challenges of democracy is, you know, we wind up doing things together. Each reason along the way seems like it makes sense. And then it adds up to something where you scratch your head. No, of course. I mean, there's a reason behind everything. Well, I had a friend who thought that when they started doing the, the neck downs, which is what they call them, these are the bump outs that you keep mm-hmm. referring to. The neck down. Yeah. And he just thought this was some big boondoggle because they just started happening in Brooklyn Heights. And he was like, who's doing this? Who's responsible for this? These neck downs, these, uh... I don't understand. Somebody's getting paid. Somebody's getting paid. And I'm like, well, it kind of makes it easier for to get for you to get across the street, doesn't it? He's like, yeah, but somebody's getting paid. <laughs> so no, and you see why. Look, Ravi is at a moment where there's historically low trust in government. The prices seem astronomical. It, you know, it, they take so long that the rhyme or reason from when you started, you sometimes don't even remember. I will say this is one of the reasons I love participatory budgeting. At least people get involved in the projects, learn a little bit about them, touch them, are mad if they take too long, you know, when they go quickly. So, you know, there's a, and there's a lot we could do to reform the city's capital projects management. That's, uh, you know, they definitely could cost less and happen faster. Um, That's something I've been, I've been pushing a lot at City Hall. Well, look, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to come on. I always like to end it with uh, with our guests to give you a moment to, if there was anything you wanted to talk about that we missed, you know, the mic is yours. You could uh, you just have like 30 seconds to mention whatever you like, and then we'll thank you for coming on. Super. Thank you. Well, yeah, this I, this is such an important topic, and I really appreciate you guys focusing on it. I appreciate Gers writing on it, and it, it matters so, so much to our folks. Um, you know, obviously, tomorrow is this, uh, you know, national walkout, you know, a month after the Parkland shootings. So I'll be with kids at MS-51 and then later in the day in Prospect Park where President Adams is organizing something. And my wife and daughter and I are going down to D.C. next week for that march, watching these kids, these young people from Parkland rise up and try to bring some sanity to our country has just been so inspiring. So, you know, if you know students tomorrow, talk to them about what they're doing. Um, this really is, you know, that's obviously a different kind of violence, but also one that, that we can end with common sense. 
and uh, I sure hope this time we're we're going to make some real steps. All right. Well said. There you go. Well, again, thanks for coming on. We we Thank appreciate you so having much, you. And uh, we'll be talking to you in the future. Look forward to it. Thanks much. Thank for the you. All right. Bye bye. Councilman Brad Lander, Johnny, got it. I got it. Nice work. Good guy. Yeah, that wasn't so bad, right? Not at all. It worked out nicely. Yeah, it was a good show. Good show. There it is. Fine show. The one question I was going to ask Paul Steely White. Before he stole away. In all his steely whiteness. I was going to ask him about, like, you grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in the suburbs. And we were talking about all the suburban, um, you know, design and, and, you know. Wide open roads. Wide open roads and stuff like that. But that does not explain the cul-de-sac. You know about the cul-de-sac? The cul-de-sac. The dreaded... I mean, I know what they are because So why is it the dreaded cul-de-sac? Why? Well, because they're dead ends. They're dead ends. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I now, said, if you were Paul Steely White... You'd probably say it's a good thing. It's a good thing because you can't go fast through a cul-de-sac. But that goes against everything that we talked about as far as, like, wide open roads and stuff like that. Like... Granted, there are lots of wide open roads that get you to the cul-de-sac, but when you get home, you're in this safe little cul-de-sac bubble. that goes that goes. It's a bubble. It Can I ask you a question? Like literally a bubble. Yeah. Do you like a cul-de-sac or a triple cantilever? If you had to pick one, because these are both things about driving I've learned from this show. So I don't understand how we can explain all that stuff. That's like picking apples and oranges. I like the triple cantilever. I don't understand the cul-de-sac. It doesn't make any sense to me. I, you know, that. Th- thankfully, there are maybe that's the answer to some of these problems. There's more cul-de-sacs here in the city. Well, again, dead end streets. There aren't the a things, lot of, of dead end streets. This is here. The, the interesting thing about the of the the cul-de-sac and the city. Um, streets actually take people places. Right. And having open streets and being able to get from one place to another without having to, you know, uh, jump a fence. Right. A cul-de-sac is not conducive for pedestrian traffic. It's not conducive to pedestrian traffic. Just like traffic. not for car traffic. It's ex- again, it's extremely personal. It's it's very selfish. A Different than a roundabout. A cul-de-sac yes. is, ver- is very selfish, you know? Yeah, it's 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 self-serving. It's it's inclusive. No, it's exclusive. exclusive. It's not it's exclusive. exclusive. Whereas I'm city streets go through. And, you know, the argument with back in the 70s and 80s, well, in the 60s and 70s, when they started knocking down streets and creating super blocks, the argument against the super block was the street didn't go through. And you couldn't, like, people couldn't get together. People couldn't see each other mm. because they weren't walking down the street, sitting on the stoop or anything like that. Their house was in the middle of this campus. You right, know? right. And the campus is not pedestrian friendly either so it's all weird wild stuff that's a again we could talk about that for i could go over this we could have a whole show on for days and and days similar to a roundabout by the way i wasn't far off shape think about it and it's also a funny spelled three how many spaces in cul-de-sac i think there's three ding 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 it's one of the the three worded Three yeah. named, three worded names. Cold descent. They should bring that up like, in a spelling bee. I wonder how that all came about. I would love. I'd love to talk to Paul Steely White about that. I'm sure he would love to come back because he had to leave. I I thought it was funny when he said he had, he you know had to get a driver's license. In my mind, I was like, you can only understand the enemy when you become the enemy. Yes. which is why he got the driver's. license. I think license. we talked about that once before, didn't we? I, we may have. I think we have. You you and I are you and. Paul Steely White. White. Know your enemy. PSW. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Well, look, I want to thank our guests today. Yeah, thank you both, Councilman Lander and Paul Steely White, of, if you're listening. Of Transportation Alternatives and of the New York City Council. And of the New York City Council. Park Slope Department. The Park Slope Department, I think exactly. that's where he's from, right? Yes, it is. I want to thank Tony. I want to thank, thank Johnny. You. Thank you. I want to thank everybody. And uh, next week, we got a big show next week? Of course, we always have a big show. I hope so. All right. right. Drive safely, Brooklyn. Look both ways. Yes, please. Bye.